Our epistle reading for this third Sunday of the season of Advent comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Hear now God's holy inspired word. We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. Who will also do it? Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your holy word, and we humbly ask you now to be with us as we work through this portion of scripture. Give us your Holy Spirit that we may hear it. May we not quench the work of the Spirit in us as we receive it. May we forget everything that is unhelpful, but cling to what is good and useful for our edification, for our sanctification, for our submission to you. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of my favorite memories growing up was going to the barbershop, a real man's barbershop, not one of these strip mall places, you know, where they offer you 27 kinds of hair product. You know what I'm talking about. A real man's barbershop, going there with my father or with my grandfather, even my great-grandfather. I love going there because of the great stack of popular mechanics and popular science magazines, some of them dating from the 1900s, uh, early 1900s, late 1800s, I'm sure, old magazines. And I, I've never seen a popular mechanics magazine outside of a barbershop. Have you? The, do they exist outside of it? Do they offer subscriptions to anybody but barbers? But I enjoyed flipping through those magazines while I waited on my grandfather or father to get their hair cut or um, was waiting to get mine cut. And I, I enjoyed so much their colorful, creative visions of the future, illustrated through pictures of flying cars and rocket-propelled jetpacks to uh, personalized kitchen robotic assistants for the for the ladies. If you've ever seen this kind of art style before, especially the art style that came, comes from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you've seen an artistic aesthetic known as, it has a name, it's known as retrofuturism. You may have heard that term before. Retrofuturism has been defined as looking back at how yesterday viewed tomorrow. So when we go back and look at illustrations from the 30s or 40s about what they thought our day was going to look like, that's, that's retrofuturism. It, it gives us a glimpse of a future that never happened. And one of the underlying truths revealed by retrofuturism is that we are hilariously, notoriously bad at predicting the future. While we attempt to imagine vehicles or fashions or houses or cities of some future age, when we try to imagine that, we get almost everything wrong. 
like home computers that take up entire rooms of the home or uh, a, the robotic kitchen assistant who it, it looks kind of like Rosie from the Jetsons, you know. Uh, images of 1950s era ranch houses on the moon complete with push mowers and, and green lawns on the moon. Or I love the drawings of men in full business suits uh, impractically commuting to work through the air with a, a mechanized uh, wings as they flap through the air. That's of course the, the world of 1982. Can you imagine when men go to, the, to work uh, uh, with, uh, with their own uh, wings. Uh, the real golden age of this aesthetic, the, the period where you'll find some of the wildest speculation was the 1930s. It was the era of the Depression, where it seems that designers found some escape uh, in thinking about how much more brilliant and shiny the future was compared to their present. But as creative as their imaginations were, and as much optimism about the future as they possessed, it didn't make them any more accurate in their prophecies. In fact, their desire to escape their present circumstances may have only made their predictions sillier and more nonsensical. But as bad as, as we are at predicting the future, and even as we acknowledge that, yes, we are bad at that, we all still live in the light of what we believe about the future. Our expectations for what is coming next shapes our present. Our present choices are determined largely by whether we're optimistic about God's future plans for us in the world, whether we're trusting that he is an active author writing history with his people at the center, or whether we think maybe he has a different agenda, or maybe whether he's even active at all. Maybe he's an absentee landlord just letting things run along by themselves. That will change how you, how you live. How we live in the present is impacted dramatically by what we believe about the future, especially when our expectations aren't centered merely around flying cars or, or rocket-boosted roller skates, but, but a future where Maybe we, we have a, a vision of the future where God has abandoned mankind or, or he's left us to fend for ourselves on a ruined planet or a future where God has no interest in glorifying or redeeming the created order. A future where God intends to obliterate everything and just save a, a meager handful out of the mess that's left over. Maybe, maybe we have a vision of the future where the Lord Jesus is not the victor over human history. Depending on which one of these outlooks you adopt, or maybe you choose a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B and some from C, uh, unless you are the kind of person who can partition your mind and say, I believe the future for the church and the kingdom of God is absolutely, desperately horrible and terrible, but I'm going to live as if it weren't unless you can do that. And Lord only knows what kind of long-term psychological effects there are of, of living with that kind of self-deception. Ordinarily, unless you're going to partition your mind and say, it's all horrible, but I'm going to live as if it weren't. Unless you're going to do that, ordinarily, your outlook is going to define your conduct. Your prognosis shapes your policy. If you have any doubts about whether this is true, just think about the way that dispensational eschatology is somehow, after all this time, still shaping U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Politically influential evangelicals are convinced that the nation state of Israel 
the secular, unbelieving nation-state of Israel is still somehow operating under their own unique plan of salvation apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that somehow Israel is going to play a big role for God's plans for the future. Well, that's true, but Israel is, true Israel is those who have accepted Jesus. And real, true sons of Abraham are those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that Israel is uh, factoring into God's plans for the future. But this, this secular nation state of Israel, the, the understanding that that somehow has, has a role in God's plan for the future uh, is, is part of this policy that's still, that's still inciting warfare and costing lives. What you believe about the future is not a marginal or peripheral concern. And in our epistle reading today, we see the Apostle Paul writing to first century Christians, reminding them of what the Lord Jesus had promised was definitely going to happen in their lifetime, very soon on the horizon. They didn't have to guess. They didn't have to cook up wild, futuristic, fantastic uh, fantasies about what might be happening in the future. They didn't have to be fortune tellers or tarot card readers. Jesus had said clearly what is going to transpire. And now Paul reminds them in light of what is coming, in light of what you know to be true about the future, here is how the Lord expects you to live and to respond. Our, our, uh, Epistle reading started in the middle of chapter 5, but I want to run back to the top of chapter 5 and and catch us up to his his stream of thought. Pick up from verse 1, and we'll, we'll read to verse 11 so we can get the context. The Apostle Paul writes, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. You notice, if you remember from our Second Peter passage last week, at that epistle reading, you notice that Paul and Peter are echoing each other. There's a lot of similarities between their messages here. That uh, Peter talked about the Lord coming as a thief in the night and how sudden that destruction would be. And now Paul picks up that same theme. He uses the same theme of a thief in the night uh, describing the Lord's return. Paul writes to them in the very same context that Peter did. And I remember from last week and from the week before, the New Testament holds this expectation that Jesus would keep his promise to return within the generation that heard his words. He says so repeatedly. He is going to come before the end of that generation. And so you see all the New Testament authors have this very same sense of urgency that they're living in the last days of the old world. Remember how in the day of Pentecost, Peter says this, 
what's happening right now, what you see is that which was written by the prophet Joel, when Joel said, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. You see what Peter's saying? Remember what Joel said about the last days? Yeah, this is it. This, this is what you're living in. This is, these are the last days. We are living in the last days that Joel spoke of. This is the fulfillment. In his first epistle, Peter then writes in uh, 1 Peter 1.20, he says, Jesus was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. The book of Hebrews begins this way, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he's talking about the exodus and the wandering in the wilderness. And then he says, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul clearly puts himself, as does Peter, in a category of one who is living in the end of the age that the prophets were talking about, the last days. And there are many more. Try to find a reference in the New Testament to the last days or the end of the age. Try to find a reference in the New Testament that isn't a, a clear reference to the present first century context. And so Paul begins chapter 5 saying, concerning these times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. In other words, you know what time it is. It's very clear. You, you know where, what days we're living in. You know, the Christians that Paul is writing to here are not in the same category as those whom Peter was writing to, we read last week. Peter's audience were beginning to mock. They were beginning to fall off into unbelief because they thought, well, it's been 30 years and the Lord Jesus hasn't returned in judgment against the temple like he said he would. Uh, but, but Paul says, you know perfectly that the day of the Lord is coming, so don't sleep, be sober. Those who sleep, sleep at night, Paul says, but you're sons of the light, you're sons of the day. You are ready and you're not afraid of the Lord's coming because you know that this is your salvation, this is your deliverance, this is your vindication when God moves to judge the old world of the old covenant. It proves that you, in fact, there's a phrase that gets thrown a lot, around a lot today. You want to be on the right side of history, right? Of course, that's why we all, we, all of us want to be on the right side of history. Well, he says, this will show that you're on the right side of history, that you are, uh, you've cast your lot with the Lord Jesus, and therefore you are, you are vindicated. This is your deliverance. And so Paul continues, you're not appointed to wrath, this, this day is not coming upon you as a day of judgment upon you or upon your belief in the Lord Jesus and your trust in him. So comfort and encourage each other with these things. For, for children of the king who love and obey the Lord Jesus, prophecies of the day of the Lord are not a terror. They, they aren't meant to give you nightmares. They're meant to give you hope. We, we cheer on the Lord as he brings his promised deliverance and as he defeats his enemies and as he defeats our enemies and sets things right, we cheer him on. This is a joyous, glorious day of the Lord. So from that perspective, when we, when we read Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians, we have a lot in common with these Christians. Though you and I, we're not waiting on the Lord to come judge the old covenant world. That's already been done. We are, you and I are watching and waiting and working toward the breaking in of the kingdom of God all over the place. We're waiting for the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But 
in order for that to happen, there have to be many more advents of the Lord Jesus. He's going to have to come and judge and set right every sphere of human existence, every corner of our lives. But the comfort is still there. There is no fear for us as he does that. It might disrupt some things that we're used to. We may not have some of the conveniences or some of the enjoyments that we're, uh, we're used to taking a part of. We, we don't know what this, what this is going to do as the Lord continues to shape and change. But, but he always brings his people through then, and, and now he always delivers his people. And that's, that's Paul's promise. Now, in the midst of this, here's what the apostle says. In the midst of all this, here's how you behave. Here's how you live. And the rest of this letter is full of these staccato, clipped statements. So any one of these would fit almost perfectly on a bumper sticker. You know, these, these little, little statements. There's no argument in a very unpalling fashion. He, he uses these very short sentences. There's no extended discourse, just one command after another. And there's nothing heavy, there's nothing dark, there's nothing foreboding about any of this. It's all set in the context of an eager, expectant, joyous, almost giddy sense that God is about to do what he said he's going to do on the grand stage of history. And, and then Paul is saying, here's, here's your part to play. As you, as you watch God play out his drama on the stage of history, you have a part and you have a part and you have lines. So you need to memorize your lines and then you become like uh, uh, just muscle memory to you. You need to have them part of you. And, and now when it's your turn to say your line, you do so. Uh, they're, they're part of you. So, so we're going to read through these little commands today. And uh, I can only spend about a minute or two on each. Uh, but but I want to hear them and I want to just see them kind of cascading over us and just hit us one after the other and receive uh, the instruction of the Lord. So verse 12, he says, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. This is one of the best references in the entire New There are other great references in the New Testament, but this is one of the best places to go to point people to the reason for church membership. Uh, churches often today have a very cavalier perspective on church membership. Oh yeah, you can come and hang out and we'll, we'll kind of like you and we'll accept you. But when it comes to following the Lord and obeying him in church discipline, how do you do that? If, if I don't know who you are and you don't know who I am, if you don't know your elders and the elders don't know the people, how do we, how do we exercise any kind of admonishment or discipline or correction in that kind of context? What this requires in order to know those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, number one, you have to know who your elders are. How do you know who your elders are unless you formally ask them, will you be my elder? <laughs> in other words, uh, can, can I join this congregation? You need another list and you need a list of people who are uh, uh, being tended to and shepherded by the elders. Uh, so so this, is a, this is a great place to go to say is there's, a, there's a very important reason why we must have formalized church membership roles. Because Paul says not only know them, but esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Whenever we're in a position of submission to somebody else, whether, whether we're looking up to parents or we're looking up to bosses or we're looking up to uh, church or community leaders, uh, magistrates, 
Anytime we look up to someone who God has placed over us as an authority, we always are tempted to think that we could do a better job than they are doing. That is a natural impulse. If I were in charge, I would never do that. If, if, I, were, if I were in charge, I would always, I would always do this. Uh, and, and when we find ourselves by God's providence in positions of leadership, the whole world changes, doesn't it? We have a different perspective and we can see why our parents look so odd and awkward and they said these things that drove us crazy. Now we're parents and we see ourselves saying the very same things. Why? Because we have knowledge we didn't have back then. And now the burden of leadership has given us a different perspective. The weight of responsibility changes everything. But as followers, from our limited vantage point, everything looks so black and white. The answer seems so clear. And this is why the scriptures say you must be deliberate about esteeming the, the leaders God has put over you. Why? Why should you esteem them? Why should you love them? Because they're perfect? Most certainly not. They are not perfect. Because they're flawless? Because their judgment is impeccable? No! Why does he say esteem them? For their work's sake. Their job is to watch out for you and pray for you and correct you when you need it. When you have a burden, they bear that burden with you in prayer before God's throne. I can tell you certainly that if you have a burden that you have shared with me, that weighs on my heart as well. I go to bed thinking about you. I go uh, to the Lord every morning praying for you. I share in your grief and in your burden and I walk with you. And I can't, I can't appreciate it fully because I'm not you. I can't, I can't fully put, put on your weight and I can't take it off your shoulders, but I am, I am walking with you and I am bearing it with you. And so, and, and our men that you have called, that you have appointed to, to set over you as elders, that you have elected, they do the same thing. To a man, I know that they are sharing your burdens with you and they are praying for you. And that's why you must esteem them. And later in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, whose name is Paul, he says, uh, let them, I'm sorry, that's a dumb joke. He, he says, let them do this with joy and not with grief because that's unprofitable for you. It's more difficult for haggard and harassed leaders to exercise sound judgment. You've experienced it at work and you've experienced it in the home where you feel like you've walked into a hornet's nest of problems, where you can't swat the problems away fast enough before more things are flying in your face. Are you at your best when that happens? Do you have clear judgment when that's going on? No, you're just trying, it's the fight or flight you know, response, right? Well, it's difficult uh, for leaders. It's difficult for the people God, have put over, God has put over you in any context to lead when they're harassed and haggard. When you're in a hornet's nest of accusations and criticisms, you're, you're not at your best. And, and, so, and so Paul says, esteem them. And at the end, he says, be at peace among yourselves. Self-correction, self-discipline prevents the other kind of discipline. So avoid the coming judgment is his message here by obedience to the fifth commandment. Obey the authorities God has put over you. Let me continue. Verse 14, he says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. 
Several months ago, Eric Holter pointed out this passage to me. He said, this is an extremely useful grid for counseling uh, people in, in the church, and it's just as useful for parenting or, or any time you're in a position to minister to another person. Hear this again. Warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. It's, it's almost as if you could just apply this and say, when you're speaking to someone or you're dealing with a, a disobedient child, you can ask, well, are they being unruly? Or are they being faint-hearted, feeble-minded? Do they need instruction? Or are they, are they weak? Which, which is it? Let's, let's look at each one in turn. Are they being unruly? This is a little diagnosis, a, a little diagnostic to run. This person that I'm trying to help, are they being unruly? What does that mean? Are they being sinful? Are they being rebellious? The word literally is out of rank or, or out of place, disruptive. Is that, is that what they're being? Are they being just out and out rebellious? Then what does he say? Then you need to warn them. Don't pull any punches. Don't hold back. The word warn in Greek ought to ring a bell for some of you. Notheteo. Have you heard that word before? Have you, have you heard of nothetic counseling? Have you heard of a, a Jay Adams uh, use that? That, that ought to, that ought to uh, ring a bell. So, so you, you warn them. Uh, you admonish them. You exhort them. We, we nothetio. We warn the unruly. But there are others that require a different response. The second category is, are they, are they faint-hearted? In the King James Version, as translated, feeble-minded. If they're, if they're faint-hearted or, or ignorant or they lack understanding, then address them, speak the truth to them. If they're working with a lack of understanding and their problem is a consequence of ignorance, then they need to be taught. You know when a child is doing something where they're being outright rebellious and you know when they're doing something when they are just ignorant of the standard. And you have to be able to tell the difference and you have to address them differently. If they're ignorant, then they must be taught. And then the third category, are they weak? Are they being, behaving this way because they're fearful, because they lack courage? Paul says, if that's the case, uphold them, brace them up, reinforce them, remind them of what they know, say the same things to them that everyone needs to hear when they're suffering, shore them up in confidence. Uh, we could spend more time on this, but, but uh, maybe underline this and come back to it and meditate on it. Warn the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Another thing Eric pointed out to me, what happens if you mix this up? What happens if you warn the weak? Or what happens if you comfort the unruly? Well, well then you stand a chance of making a bigger mess than the one that was brought to you. R remember last week what we said about the importance of a sense of timing? This is a perfect application of that. God's word requires us to have a mature sensitivity to the circumstances around us. We don't have just one tool in our box. You know, if we all, if we all had a hammer, well, then everything would be a nail and we just go hitting everybody with a hammer. But, you know, we got a screwdriver. We got a uh, we got a wrench. We've got, we've got WD-40. We've got duct tape. You know, we've got, we got different tools. And I'm not even going to try to make application to each one of these with those. But, but you see, we do have different tools to use when God presents us with different challenges. And people are complicated and they all don't need, uh, they all don't require the same approach. So we have to pay attention. We can't be tone deaf or ham-handed, but patient. We live in light of the glorious future that God is working out on our behalf 
and it requires us to master this. Let me keep going. Verse five, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Don't render evil for evil. Don't seek revenge. With a view toward coming judgment, we know that if God judges everything at the end, then you and I don't have to mete out perfect judgment all the time, every time. We don't have to balance out all the books in our lifetime. Our, our knowledge is limited. We can only go by what we see. And God is the final judge. And I can guarantee you, he will not let anything slip by that requires judgment. So then, because of this, you are liberated from taking revenge. You are liberated from petty, passive-aggressive, cold-shoulder strategies of treating other people uh, rudely and meanly who have offended you. You're off the hook. You don't have to do any of that because, because God is the final judge. What's left for you? Well, you're free to love your enemies. Turn over their wickedness to God. Pray that he will, that he will judge where, where they need to be judged and correct where they need to be corrected after you have warned the unruly. But beyond that, beyond that, you're off the hook. You're free to love them. If there were no future judgment, it would be up to you to make sure everything was sorted out in this life. But you know what? That's not the case. There is a future judgment. So you don't do something in the midst of that that puts you squarely in need of judgment yourself. Now, Paul picks up speed here, and, he, and, and this is where it gets staccato, and he just fires these things off. He says, rejoice always. You know what that means, right? We have to be happy all the time, no matter what, right? You never can cry. You can never weep. No, that's not true at all. We're given psalms of lament to sing. Jesus wept over Lazarus. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. Jesus cried out on the cross. Rejoicing always doesn't mean that we have to pretend as if everything was okay when it's not. But it does mean that we don't fall into despair. Knowing, yes, life has horrible things and bad and wrong and evil things. But in the midst of this, even in the middle of the Psalms of lament, there is a joyful, sober hope, a celebration that God's enemies have already been defeated by the Lord Jesus and that our future victory over them is guaranteed. So even in the midst of sorrow, there's hope and there can be rejoicing. He says, pray without ceasing. When do you start praying every day? When do you start? About 10, 30, 12, two o'clock in the afternoon? You should start praying the minute you open your eyes. Thank you, Lord. Oh, wow, you gave me a new day. Thank you. you you're resurrecting me from a, a death sleep, as it were. You, you're giving me a resurrection, a new life today. Thank you, Lord. Now give me the strength to do what I have to do today. When do you stop praying? Well, when you close your eyes at night. Thank you, Lord. Now give me rest. Protect my family. I'm about to go to sleep. I can't protect my family, but keep my children safe. Keep us all safe. The Christian's entire day from beginning to end is an ongoing dialogue of short 
prayers and long prayers, whispered internal petitions, outward singing of psalms, and even speaking prayers out loud when you're alone in the car, which I do often. I wonder, I'm so thankful for Bluetooth technology. So now people who are driving by me think, well, he must be talking on the phone. I don't know who he's talking to. But sometimes, Lord, please help and save and deliver. And Lord, fix this. I can't fix it. Lord, Lord, change this. And Lord, help me. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Every day is a never-ending dialogue between you and the Heavenly Father, bringing the life of eternal communion that we will enjoy with him in eternity, bringing that life into the now and the here. Pray without ceasing. Always be praying morning, noon, and night. And he says, in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is the will of God for you? Gratitude in everything. Can you name anything in the entire realm of human experience? Can you name anything that cannot or has not been criticized? People gripe about how sunny it is. People gripe about the weather, which we have no control over. And if we can gripe and complain about that, then certainly we can gripe and complain about each other. And we can be ungrateful for the blessings of God himself. So if there's nothing anywhere that can't be criticized, everything has been and can be criticized, what makes you think that you're such a penetrating, wise, discerning person for being able to level criticisms against this person or that or this thing over, over there. The fact that you can complain about something doesn't necessarily mean that you are this incredibly clear thinking, discerning individual. Anybody can gripe. It does mean you're an ingrate. It doesn't mean you have a gift of discernment. It does mean you're an ingrate. But Let's flip that around. Who can rejoice over all of God's good gifts in everything and through everything? Remember, last year we spent like several Sundays on gratitude. And, and what I kept coming back to, and I'll repeat now, is ingratitude is the root of all sin. Every single sin has as its seed, as its starting point, ingratitude. Thanklessness for something. We get good at what we practice. So practice ingratitude, cultivate complaint, cultivate bickering and contentiousness in your life and teach it to your kids. And what do you think you're going to get? The scriptures say, in everything, give thanks. Then he continues, verse 19, do not quench the spirit. What is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and in the church? What is his mission? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, the very presence of God in the church to unify, empower, encourage, strengthen, and sanctify you. His mission is to keep the church moving along on her mission, to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to embolden the church to speak the truth clearly. He puts songs in her mouth. He makes her pure and lovely and glorious through his work of sanctification. Don't quench that. Don't make her ugly, the church that is. Don't stifle or distract from her beauty or her message. Don't frustrate the work of God's Holy Spirit by pride, by insolence or rebellion. Do not despise prophecies, he says in verse 29 who are prophets. Prophets are the heralds of a new age. They call down God's verdict on the world that's passing away. 
Prophets speak words of judgment that close the chapter of a, uh, of a time in history. They initiate renewal of the covenant. That, that requires change and growth and maturation into a new world and a new kind of man. The, the wicked man, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks studying history and time, the wicked man wants everything to stay static or the same, or he just wants this cycle to repeat over and over. The wicked man wants progress, but what he's really after is the status quo of paganism. The prophet calls for God's judgment on false old beliefs, on old attitudes and old strategies that are way past their expiration date. We who live in the expectation of better things must not despise prophets who pave the way for better things to come. Just because those better things are uncomfortable or embarrassing or awkward, and as change often is, we can't hate the agents whom God is using to bring change in the world because we are a future-oriented people and God gives us prophets to orient us to the future. In verse 21, he says, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Be discerning, no right from wrong, no good from evil, and be skilled at knowing which is which. Have your antennas up and trust the Holy Spirit when he convicts you that something smells bad. Do not repress your spiritual gag reflex. When you see something or smell something, oh, that's, that's awful. Don't say, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm naive. No, it's probably really, really bad. It's probably bad if it smells bad. And when you find the good, hold fast to it. Don't let it slip out of your fingers. He says in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, most of us have the King James translation stuck in our head from this verse. The translation uh, in the King James was abstain from the very appearance of evil. And that's often interpreted to, to mean, well, you're supposed to avoid even looking like you're doing something bad. But, but is that what Jesus did? Did he avoid doing what the Pharisees thought looked bad? Oh, certainly not. <laughs> Jesus uh, ate with the publicans and the sinners and uh, he he feasted with them. So a better way of uh, translating this, and actually a stronger admonition, would be to avoid the presence of evil. Not, not simply the appearance of evil, but the presence of evil. Not, not simply the things that appear to be bad, but which are actually evil. Avoid those things. Idolatry, sexual immorality, greed, hateful, violent behavior. These are the things that Jesus is coming to judge when he comes. So when the hammer of judgment falls on these things, you don't want to be on the head of the nail. Step, step away. Avoid the presence of evil because the hammer of judgment is falling on these things. And then Paul ends with this prayer. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. The fact that you and I can completely absolutely depend upon the Lord Jesus to do what he said he will do gives us confidence and assurance that we can live in light of the future that he has promised. You don't have to have a plan B. You don't have to have an ace in the hole if perhaps the Lord is not going to do what he said he's going to do. You don't have to have an exit strategy. The future guarantees of the Lord are the foundation of the future-oriented Christian's conduct. In this way, by this commitment to live now, to live now in light of future blessing and judgment, in, in light of the future coming of the kingdom of God, the church claims the future. In our context, in this country, particularly in this generation, 
It is the progressives and the radical feminists, among others, who have everyone buffaloed into thinking that they are the ones who claim the future. Like, like Bernie Sanders has said repeatedly, you know, this, this, this is the future. We own the future. While conservatism, it is thought, is all about preserving long dead, forgotten, dusty, quaint artifacts. That's, that's what conservatism is all about. And it's assumed that progressivism is about the future. Have you seen the t-shirt and the bumper sticker with the slogan, the future is female? Have you seen that? I've, I've started to see this more and more. That was something Hillary Clinton said uh, in her campaign last year, and it was a call back to the feminist movement in the 1970s. That actually came out of the night, she didn't come up with that. Uh, that, that came out of the 1970s, the future is female. Now, what, what does that even mean? Does it mean that in the future men are gonna go underground and not be around anymore? How will there even be females in the future if there are no men in the future? Now, I could go along with you and I could say, yeah, if you mean by that the future of humanity is to be the spotless bride prepared for Jesus as the mighty bridegroom, <laughs> or some clever Christian sloganeer could, could say that better, I'm sure, and put it on a t-shirt. If, if you're saying that, then I could say, that's, that's good, I like that. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying men have had their turn and now, now they're done and now it's our turn. Men have acted like jerks and pigs and now it's our turn to act like jerks and pigs. <laughs> and you know what, I get it, I get it. Men, unregenerate, unsanctified men and, and many Christian men as well have behaved toward women and children like fools. They've acted like jerks, they have been pigs. And why I feel so sorry for progressive women is because they have to spend so much time around progressive men. And so the men that they know and see and they, they're, they're, they're mistreated by are, are the people who've bought into the very, the very ethos that they're, that they're promoting. So they say the future is female. Oh, one more thing, what pray tell is female if gender is fluid? What, what do you even mean by this? If gender is a construct, what, is, what are you saying? You can't have it both ways. Of course, what they mean by this is that, that the future will be dominated by a certain kind of female. Their definition of a child-hating, man-hating, thoroughly secular female. By the way, Christian females need not apply, right? You're just as bad as men, you Christian females. You, you see though, I'm just pulling out one example of how they own and try to control and take over the narrative. They claim the future and they say that it is theirs, but the future is most definitely not theirs because wickedness has no future. Keep repeating that to yourself. When you watch the news, when you're reading stories on the internet, when you see the latest perversion, every time Man attempts to pull God down off the throne and climb up there himself. Say it to yourself, repeat it to yourself. Wickedness has no future. The future is Christ. The future is the kingdom. The future is the church. It's Jesus and his people. They don't claim the future. The future is ours. And that's, that's one way to summarize Paul's message here. Be children of the day, be children of the light, be children of the morning. This means we don't fall in line with their agenda. 
We don't sit down and shut up when they tell us to. We don't follow the world, we lead it. We don't conform to the culture, we change it. We don't take up our marching orders from liberal and morally compromised Christians who are just trying to placate the, the radicals and the progressives. No matter how sensitive they sound, and they do sound really sensitive at times, we don't get our instructions or marching orders from them. We get our instructions from the Bible, the whole Bible. So when you and I look at the future, we're not defined by panic or despair or by dread, but steady, mature, constant faithfulness. Children of God, the future is ours. The foolish man says, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What the scriptures say is, we can pray, sing, dance, feast, and be holy, for tomorrow we live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for all the ways that you have instructed your people and you guide us to holiness by your Holy Spirit. So Father, may we absorb the things we've heard today and may we be leaders of our homes, of our communities, of, of every sphere over which you hold dominion. Father, uh, strengthen us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.